everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Business Growth Show, where we talk about all components of business and how to utilize them for exponential growth. My name is Nathan Cassiotis. I'm a business strategist where I help business owners grow and scale to create wealth and freedom. And today, I have an awesome guest. He's a globally recognized as a leading futurist, keynote speaker, strategy advisor, best-selling author, and entrepreneur. He has delivered keynote speeches and strategy workshops in over 30 countries across six continents for companies such as American Express, Boston Consulting Group, Citibank, Coca-Cola, Google, Microsoft, Oracle, PwC, Visa, Walmart, and many others. And he's the founding chairman of the Advanced Human Technologies Group and of companies and the founder of Bondi Innovation. And he's the author of five books, including his most recent book, Thriving on Overload, The Five Powers for Success in a World of Exponential Information, along with Living Networks, which the New York Times credits with predicting the social networking revolution, the Amazon.com bestselling bestseller, Developing Knowledge-Based Client Relationships, and the highly successful Implementing Enterprise 2.0 and Getting Results from Crowds. His frequent media appearances include CNN, Bloomberg, TV, Sky News, ABC Today, Sunrise Shows, The New York Times, among many others. And he has been named as one of the most influential people in the world of work, fintech, crowdfunding, and Enterprise 2.0. And by Digital Media Magazine, as one of the 40 biggest players in Australia's digital age. Welcome, Ross Dawson, and thank you for being on my show. It's a great pleasure. Awesome, mate. I'm sure it's going to be an awesome show for everyone watching and listening today. So... Firstly, you're a very successful entrepreneur. So for those people who don't know who you are, please introduce yourself by telling us about you and your journey. Well, uh, it's been quite a journey. I've had a bit of time to add it now. Um, I think I think actually the, the long story is relevant to, to who I am. So I was born in Canberra, but I left very young. My father was the I got a job with the United Nations. So I went to Geneva and went to the International School of Geneva. So very uh, diverse influences and I suppose perspectives on seeing the world. Uh, went to university and studied physics uh, at Bristol in the uh, United Kingdom and then came back to Australia. So from that foundation, I worked in computer sales for NCR and then international equities sales for Merrill Lynch, went to Tokyo, worked for Thompson Financial and ended up uh, running a division of Thompson Financial out of London globally, the Capital Markets Group. So I would always meant uh, intended to do my own thing. And so the time had come and took some time off and came back to Australia. And from there, really, it was an intent on this always intent on being able to build things which hadn't been done before. And, you know, trying to do things globally out of Sydney. It's a bit harder from Sydney than it is from New York or London, but it's still well possible as many many other uh, you know entrepreneurs have found so it's it's really a lot part of it was really building the profile sort of my first books uh there's been probably too many ventures to name over time sort of some more successful than others and really keeping to this vision overall of how it is we can bring together talent in particular you know this idea of extraordinary talent and uh, how we can bring that together in order to be able to create new models. And I think we've got our classic business models and ways of bringing things together, our classic types of organization. I've always tried to experiment with uh, new ways to uh, create ventures, create impacts, to be able to bring together things. And you know, perhaps we can chat about some of those ideas. But it really has been uh, a journey driven by wanting to do things with a positive impact, but also deliberately wanting to do things differently. I mean, it's kind of, for me, it wouldn't be successful if I made lots of money doing the same things of other people were doing. It's always trying to find new ways of doing things. Yeah, awesome. What an amazing story. I love that, hear the background and that, that diverseness and, and what you're doing now. And firstly, you know, I love the term futurist. I, I will say you're the only futurist I know, Ross. Um, uh, there's not many out there. And a lot of people probably even haven't heard this term before. So I'd love to hear, what, how would you explain like the definition of, you know, what a futurist is? Uh, tell us more about that. So, so for me, a futurist is someone who helps people and organizations to think about the future better so that they can act 
better today. And so predictions are maybe sometimes useful, sometimes not useful, but that's not the point. And the fact that I have some insight into the future, and I suppose some of my, you know, books have, I suppose, suggested that I'm, I do have some have some perspectives on the future, sort of ahead of, uh, sometimes ahead too far of what's happening. That that's that's not useful. That that's you know that's my own thing, and that's where as an entrepreneur I try to play to where I think things are going. But my role as a futurist, and why people hire me in my role is in order to give them other perspectives, additional frames to help them think more and more usefully about the future, what it might do only to the effect that they can act better today. And a lot of that framing for me is to recognizing the positive potential. And so that's the, the critical frame is understanding there are challenges. There's always challenges with change, but there are also opportunities. And the faster the pace of change, Arguably, the greater the challenges and the greater the opportunities. So that's my role is to work with leaders and organizations to help them understand the nature of change so that they can see the positive potential and act on that to create value. Yeah, I love it. Really great um, definition. They're really powerful. And, you know, it stems well with business, business innovation like you were talking about, right? It's always important to stay ahead of the competition or or be in the blue ocean where, you, you know, you're doing your own thing, so to speak, apart from the, the competition. So I, I'd love to hear from your perspective of how do you like approach innovation? Because there's a lot of different ways I've you know, I've done an MBA as well and different ways of looking at innovation. So I'd love to hear, um, you know, your thoughts around how you approach it and, and how to be a bit different, you know, for people um, that are wanting to, to, you know, change the game. Well, the, the context is very important. So for me or for startups, there's, you know, or again, even then a whole set of frames. And, but I also run the directing innovation program for the Australian Institute of Company Directors. And that's a very different frame where these are directors. And so that's one frame of locus of influence uh, for very large established organizations. <clears throat> but my, you know, the way I think about innovation is the making of the new. So whatever it is that is new. So that is, if you're a startup, it's all new, you know, but you're trying to do things in ways which haven't been done before. It's being able to perceive opportunity. I think that comes back to that futurist frame of there is change. So where do you see opportunity? So in a startup frame, you're also saying the world is changing. Where will opportunities to create value uh, reside? Uh, or you know, where do they already, already reside in the world that we have? For established organizations, and there's a number of different categories of innovation. There's product or service innovation, there is organizational innovation, there's process innovation, you know, there is um, strategy innovation. And if you're working, you know, when I work with leaders of larger organizations, it's understanding, well, what are the different types of innovation? Where can innovation, the making of the new happen in your organization. All right, we create a new product or we reinvent our business strategy or we reorganize ourselves in new ways uh, or we improve our processes or we improve our marketing, uh, the ways in which we deliver our, our products and to market. These are all types of innovation and all are important. You know, none of those you can stay the same. We always need to be making ourselves anew. The world is always changing. So if you stay static, you'll be left behind. You always need to be making yourselves anew. And some of those are quite, you know, embedded into business processes. Oh, we have, you know, we, as an organization, we're always creating new products. Oh, that's fine. And uh, do you need to improve the pace? Do you need to, are there ways to improve that? Are there ways you can create uh, products which have a greater impact? But the frame for a leader in saying is which of those types of innovation is the most important now? And that's where you start to allocate your resources. How uh, you, you know, organize, you lead, you frame, you shift culture in order to innovate in those frames. So because innovation is the making of the new, which we always need to be doing in a changing world, it is, you know, it needs to be the, the foundation of what an organization is, but it is around 
how it is, um, you know, what are the priorities in particular around that and where, you know, what it is that supports that, be they processes, be they culture, be, be they uh, organizational structures, be they, you know, templates, be they reward structures, then there's any number of, I suppose, levers that we can apply in order to be able to support effective innovation. Yeah, awesome. Love that model of uh, thinking a bit differently, uh, a bit of a framework there on how to innovate really well. And um, I'd love to delve into some some key, um, you know, trends and things that I'm seeing at the moment. But first, I'd love to open it up to you because I'm sure you've got a, a wider lens than what I do with what you do. So what key trends and in the developments do you see, I guess, expanding or even contracting um, in the future? Oh, well, that, that's a way we could spend days and days and days <laughs> uh, to try to answer that question. So the you know we, we, it's what's relevant to again it depends on context uh on you know what are you who you are as an organization you know are you one person startup are you uh you know large, you know organization what industry are you in as to what is shifting you know we can think of you know there's a whole different structures you know to, you know futures methodologies to be able to think around the categories of the, the types of things that are emerging. And I think, you know, the three broad categories that I usually bring into, you know, framing things for leaders is in terms of technological change. Obviously, there's many technologies that are impacting the structure of how value is created in terms of social shifts. So which is both what, how are we changing in our behaviors, in our attitudes, in the ways in which we interact with the world individually and then collectively. What are our, how are our social attitudes changing? How is the structure of society changing? How are the political elements? And finally, the changing structure to value creation, where we have moved from, you know, very classic, you know, you buy, buy things and make them into products and sell them and, you know, linear value chains through to, you know, essentially where it is all about networks and ecosystems. And the, these are all shifting again, of course, advanced by technological uh, support. So within each of those domains, in terms of technologies, in terms of social shifts, and in terms of uh, business structure or the structure of value creation, you know, there's, different things which are relevant to, to each of those. Now, some of the two, in the terms of the technology domains, the two, well, actually, no, it's, I think if we think about society, we our expectations are always increasing. And that's driving more and more opportunities. And I think we need to be always focusing on how are people changing? What are their, how their behavior is changing? What it is they expect? What are the different uh, shifts in that? And that is being driven by new technology that are emerging in different fronts. And I think what two domains, which I think are particularly relevant now, one, I suppose the, the extremely obvious one of uh, artificial intelligence, you know, that's being deployed and the role of humans relative to, to that, but also in terms of our interfaces, between us and computers and us machines rising from not just, you know, texts and keyboards and screens to now uh, things like uh, gesture interfaces, eye gaze tracking, uh, brain computer interfaces. You know, these are some of the trends which are really shifting the nature of how it is you know, we exist in our world. Yeah, awesome. I love that. Really, really powerful. Thanks for the overall three areas. I love that. And um, yes, you know, you could talk about this, like you said, for days. So let, let's get a bit more specific now on talking about a few of these. So just quickly on the interfaces, because that's something that I haven't really been thinking of much um, about that. <clears throat> so tell us a little bit more about, I guess, how they're used today. Um, and then maybe what, how that will change over time, whether it's, you know, unlocking something with your face or something like that, or is it, is it more than that about how that will, you know, change over time? So the evolution has been, uh, you know, we can all track that over time in terms of, you know, with the, and the, 
anybody who has been around technology for a long time will you know refer back to the what was called the mother of all demos where Doug Engelbart demonstrated the mouse and the you know screen based user interface and, and so this essentially for decades now we've been using a screen sitting in front of us a keyboard qwerty keyboard and a mouse and so the the major evolution in all this was the smartphone that's where we started to have a new interface for what is now a majority of our interactions for most people so this is something where we hold that it's a smaller screen we can use touch to be able to interact with the screen that's really one of the most dramatic uh, ev evolutions in our interfaces and to be able to tap on the screen to be able to guide you know text and a variety of other things so that's where we are today where the smartphone has added to the existing you know computer technologies so now the next phase, so some of the most important ones, uh, uh, first of all, we start to is where we have facial recognition to the point of emotion, where we start to our emotion, our facial expressions, our eye gaze. And so eye gaze is very important. So for example, we can start to use our eye gaze to uh, show rather than pressing a button, we can look at it and it can you know, respond. You know, again, if we let it choose it let to do so uh, and other way and the other critical one which is of course evolved is voice where now we're using more and more voice to be able to control things and so we start to have uh, voice vo voice intonation uh, you know uh, where we are looking the emotions on our face to be able to respond to things one of the next phases, which looks like it's not going to be quite as soon as expected, is using uh, augmented glasses to be able to control the ones around us. So those who already have glasses, when we can, in relatively lightweight, include the ability to see things on the screen so we don't need to pull things out of our pocket, hold those in the hand, and look down at them. Uh, that's going to be another critical interface. And the, the next one is really various aspects of brain computer interfaces. So it's a quite a long journey and uh, generally where we'll have what are called invasive brain interfaces where we require surgery. But uh, one of the very interesting developments of last year was that Snap, um, so of course, which runs Snapchat, but also has its uh, Snap uh, glasses, has uh, bought a essentially a brain computer interface company which has a little headset where you can use your thoughts to control the world. And so fairly evidently, they are looking to be able to incorporate your or using your thinking, be able to control your glasses and what it is you see and what may go into Snapchat or other types of interfaces. So, you know, these are some of the, I suppose, thinking about some of the evolution of how it is that we uh, interface with technology. Yeah. Awesome, mate. Love that. Really powerful. Thank you for sharing uh, where it's going. And yes, looking forward to seeing uh, where that will go. I'm always a bit interesting about invasive surgery into the brain, but this other version of SNAP uh, sounds a lot better to start with at the same time. Um, so love that. Um, let, let's get into AI, because like you said, that's a massive one um, that's happening now. There's a lot of different technology platforms that are using it. The most uh, biggest one that's you know on everybody's lips right now is ChatGPT as well, of course, um, with that coming out recently and and thinking that it's going to get rid of a lot of jobs, you know, um, because of, um, you know, whether it's copywriting or, or other things like that as well. But there's so many different areas of AI with video, with a lot of other things that AI is doing stuff that I see. But I'd love to hear from yeah, your perspective of, you know, what what's it being used in at the moment that you're seeing that's really, um, you know, innovative, but also where is it going to go, um, or, or, you know, in changing business as well as, you know, life as well? So my major theme for this year is, is humans plus AI. And so this whole frame of how humans and AI are complementing each other. And this really goes to a lot of the work I've done for the last couple of decades. So the, I have been pulling this in the frame of the future of work. You know, where, where is work going? The long been debates around the degree to which technology would result in job losses. And some time ago, I came to the conclusion that we are going to have 
continue to have strong employment for the for you know for as long as we can imagine where we will continue to restructure what it is we do so that there may be roles or activities or tasks or things that have been done in the past by people now done by technology but we will continue as we have done for millennia to reshape our work so that we continue to have work for there will yeah, we will be creating work for for people and so the in terms you know the most obvious way in which ai is being used now is essentially content creation uh, a lot of fairly um crude and basic ways which have, that's been used at the moment uh, beginning to be a few which are using it in more uh, relevant ways but this pulling to where this is all going is to where we will have every organization will continue to hire people and they will more and more integrate AI into their processes. And this is more about building a modular workflow where every activity, every task, every job will involve both humans and technology. And this is more about modularizing, bringing down those elements where we have task where humans are superior individually or collectively and they do that task they then have some element of that task performed by ai they may then be either reviewing or editing or supporting or uh, assessing or approving uh, whatever that activity of the ai to be able to then pass that on to other human or other ai to be able to move that in turn so now we are reconfiguring, redesigning the whole structure of work for organizations. And that's completely relevant from startups through to massive multinational corporations. It is this breaking down into elements. And so this is part of this is assessing what is it that humans are best at? What is it that AI best at? How can we bring those together, into, you know, interface those, I suppose, build them in sequence so that we can create the outcomes that we want and value creation. And that boundary is always changing as to what, what a human does best and what an AI does best as we get more technology. But we're continuing to see humans in those roles. One of the critical things is not just to be able to redesign these workflows and uh, you know the technologies and ways they can be best used by humans uh, in that workflow, but developing skills of humans so that we can best use those technologies to be able to uh, drive value in these you know, new structures for how humans and AI together are creating value. Yeah, awesome. Love it. I love the uh, connection there of together, like you said, because I've looked at some of these uh, um, things online and yes, you definitely need to think about how I use them to the best advantage. So that'll be definitely probably a whole business in itself um, of how to really get the most out of AI, which I love as well. Um, and something you touched on there was, you know, how we work and that COVID's, you know, obviously created a very virtual working environment, right? Where we had to with, with being locked down. And now there seems to be quite a hybrid model of working. And it, depending on the business, some companies are like, oh, let's do virtual forever. Then the rest of them are like, you have to come into the office five days a week now globally, right? In, in different areas, or, you know, maybe it's like two days a week um, here and there, three days. So I, I'd love to hear, because they're obviously you know, it's easier to an extent to build a culture if you're there and you get those water cooler conversations and things, which are maybe a bit more challenging uh, unless you have a specific set of technology um, out there to allow that um, these days in a virtual sense. So I'd love to hear from your perspective of what you're seeing with, you know, working environments of where that's heading to now as well. So as you've suggested, you know, we've, we've squarely to the hybrid work and, you know, even those organizations that are as forcing as they can sort of the, the Monday to Friday, nine to five is still, you know, they're, they're, if people for whatever reason can't be there, then they're still, you know, there's obviously working remotely in various guises or doing that when after they get home in the evenings as often as the case. So, you know, essentially almost all work is hybrid and bringing those together in structures. So this is one of the, the points where, you know, for a long time, I pointed to the divergence in organizations, that there are more and more different ways in which organizations are becoming more different rather than more and more the same. And one of those junctures has been in how companies use social technologies, 
where some they are embedded in the structure of how things work, others they have been, you know, taken, you know, taken out or not used. And essentially each of ways in this these social tools or technology used in organizations amplifies the culture of that organization. So one of the other choices in organizations is how they use technology, how they use AI. And again, there's many ways in which you can do that. You can try to replace people wholesale. You can not use very much. You can build more modularized workflows. There's more and more, you know, infinite possibilities for how you integrate technologies. And now sort of prompted by the, uh, you know, there's always had these choices, but now with COVID we've had this uh, prompting of more and more divergence in organizations and how they structure uh, in the office and beyond. But this does go back to this point of the interfaces where essentially everyone is using a video conferencing tool and then you know often some kind of a internal messaging tool. Uh, so the next generation is how is it that we get to richer types of interaction? And of course, some are talking about the metaverse as a place where we can have richer interactions, make it feel like we're in a meeting room and uh, looking around at the people, uh, you know, the avatars of the people around us as opposed to just being a bunch of boxes on a screen uh, with images. Um, but also getting higher and higher resolution types of uh, interfaces where we can have quasi 3D types interfaces and ones where we're starting to, to push that. So the types of technologies of communication at distance and those, the way they improve that are, are fundamental. You know, we can't assume, you know, we shouldn't assume that the fact that we are sitting in front of computer screens with, you know, video images of the person on the other side is where it ends. We are, have to, we do have to push more and more in terms of the, the those more immersive, higher resolution uh, ways of interacting. And, you know, the reality is we can discern incredibly fine uh, distinctions in how you know people's faces are there's micro muscle movements and so on in people's faces and so on which are just not possible even on high resolution screens but that is part of what is lost by being a distance rather than close at hand so we need to try to we you know technologies will continue to get us closer to this feeling of being in the same room even though we are physically distant and that is a journey which you know is will take decades to get to where where, you know, potentially the point where we it's hard to discern whether we are in the same room as somebody or whether they are uh, very distant. And that's uh, moving towards that. But the other thing is around going back to the workflows, how it is that people are collaborating and uh, working together to create value. The reason organization exists, as opposed to being a whole set of individuals, is that you can do things together better than you can individually. And so it's around being able to, to tap that effectively. So a lot of the distinction has been made is that as we shift to a now, you know, not, where we are not necessarily in the same place, we're moving more and more to asynchronous work where things we're not necessarily in the same room or talking to the same person. We build the structures to be able to support that. That requires a shift of how it is we think, how about that we go about things. But to optimize the times when we are together, and again, it's not just about humans plus AI, where it's all right, we've got humans plus AI, but how did the, and how do the humans and AI collaborate as well together, but how can the humans collaborate with each other as effectively as possible? And this goes to the point, the broader point of collective intelligence. And that's something which I've you know, been interested in and developing my thinking about since the 1990s is how it is we can actually, uh, as much as possible, make a group of people more intelligent, able to tap all of their capabilities uh, and use their perspectives as, uh, as broadly as possible. So more and more the race of organizations is not just to be able to incorporate AIs, but to really literally tap the best on the potential of the people within them individually and collectively. Yeah. Awesome. Love that. Ross, really, really powerful there. And 
Um, one thing you mentioned I'd love to go a little bit deeper on is the metaverse um, because it is being being speaking a lot more now right with um, now it's probably going to take like you said a lot of years we're seeing some of these avatar type things happening now in the metaverse um, but um, it'd be interesting to see because obviously there's like for example the movie Ready Player One I think movies are a great way to see about where things could potentially go right and they're, they're playing this game and it's it's extremely realistic and it sort of goes to the conversation are we already in the matrix or not right with how um, we are as, as humans which is probably another big topic which uh, we can talk about another time but it's um, like you said how indistinguishable it is to real reality and, and everything that we get so, so I'd love to hear, um, I guess, evolution. What's what's the next step in, you know, how to use this metaverse? Because I, I see a lot of traction, uh, you know, in it. I think that's like, apart from AI, that's uh, to me a, a massive one uh, on how things will change um, over time. And where, where do you think see it? I guess going in the in the short term as well as you know long term. There. The critical thing. Well, there's a couple of critical things. One is the quality of the technology, essentially, and the pace of development. So one of the very interesting news items over the last uh, week, I think the last week, was that it's still, it's still a rumor, so still to be confirmed, but that Apple is discontinuing its plans, uh, any firm plans for its so-called eyeglasses, its smart glasses, but it's doubling down on its mixed reality headset you know, long, long anticipated, still hasn't launched uh, with an initial price point, 3000 US dollars. And they're trying to now say, okay, we're going to double down on be able to cut the price to something closer to an iPhone. So the, this is the, where we require far, as I you know alluded to before, we need far higher screen resolution. So the best of the, screens um, in our in the VR headsets at the moment is essentially giving us around 8k uh, 8 you know, 8,000 sorry 8 million pixels per um, per eye and that's still given that that is our entire field of view it is still pretty crude resolution and be able to see the world so the, we do require for this to be able to start to replicate what it is we can or get closer to what it is we can see in real life to really, for example, to you know, be more immersive. We require substantially higher screen resolution. Another of the key uh, issues in headsets is latency, how uh, tied the movement of the images to the screen or the response in terms of the, you know, what the regeneration of the images with what we are doing. So these are still developing relatively slowly into, in the big picture of saying, all right, this imagination of, you know, the, the you know, Ready Player One, what that might be like to be in, you know, where that's set, I think, late 2040s or something. And that's the kind of timeframes which are looking at for where we can start to get the types of really truly immersive uh, headset experience. But the other critical domain is that these are, how long are we going to want to keep a, a headset on during the day? And I don't think that, you know, we're not, we're not going to have it on all day. It's just not going to happen. That's um, for, for partly in terms of the, just the comfort on our face, however good we get the quality of them. And the second is in terms of just taking ourselves away from reality, from just being where we are. So <clears throat> I think the essentially we are going to be having to look for the use cases. Where is it <clears throat> in our day, in our interaction that we want to, um, what it's worth, be able to put on a headset and spend our time cut off from reality to be in the space? What is it? What are the use cases? It could be, you know, very obviously, for example, a meeting where you have a specific agenda and you're working through that. <clears throat> or, for example, where you are doing a tour of a facility. All right, I'm going, we want to go around, we want to show you what is happening in this uh, plant where you will be working from now on and we're going to 
educate you and show you when that happens in a period of time. So more and more, this is around, first of all, the gradual, you know, what we gradual on the big picture development of the technologies and be able to make sure that we have the, the right use cases for the technology as um, within our working day. Yeah, awesome, mate. Love that. Really powerful um, distinction there with how we're going to use it um, in different elements there. And another one, you know, I'm seeing a lot more of now is is Web 3.0, as they call it, right? And then that's, you know, to my understanding is using blockchain, you know, in what we're doing in, in the internet. Um, so there's a lot more focus on that now. You see people using it in, in platforms on how they interact with people and using that technology um, which, which you know, is sort of the evolution of the internet, right? Over time, how it's um, evolved a lot from the good old dial-up days um, to, to where it is now. So, where do you see um, this? Is you know, Web three going and the internet going? I say, I guess over the next ten years and, and beyond. The, <clears throat> there's been a lot of missed opportunities with Web three, and I was actually just chatting to a venture capital investor. Uh, a couple of days ago and you know expressing that my skepticism in web3 as it stands today so the vision is still ex extraordinarily powerful for what we can achieve with a distributed web which is essentially what web3 is the challenge you know starting with the challenge it's that there is once you start getting coins attached to um you know web3 initiatives it starts to become speculative and everyone gets tied to the potential for financial gains as opposed to the underlying utility of the products. So, and that essential dynamic of the ways in which Web3 um, initiatives are structured is going to massively impede the development of these initiatives. And so we've seen, of course, developments over the last six months in particular, which have uh, massively negatively impacted the entire crypto space. And essentially crypto and Web3 are tied together, you know, through their underlying uh, structure and the fact that often coins are uh, used in Web3 initiatives. So I think that's an important context for what will massively slow the potential of Web3 initiatives. But having said that, the frame of distributed web, distributed value creation, I think is fundamental to where the economy is going. And, and you know, this is actually a, a theme which I talked about amongst other things in Living Networks over 20 years ago. And I, you know, I still look at in terms of underlying structure. So what we will start to see at its best and the, you know, the best examples is that we, that we have uh, initiatives, organizations um, start to organize themselves on these principles. So the, the most compelling within all of this is, you know, what are called the, the DAOs, the distributed autonomous organizations, which to this point, uh, this point are still far below the potential, essentially structures where people vote on outcomes within their uh, the business. And there is no one single owner. Uh, some of them interesting, but only still very early. But the original uh, vision of uh, distributed autonomous organizations as envisaged by Vitalik Buterin when he pronounced, uh, proposed them some years ago. So Vitalik is the uh, founder of Ethereum, and probably the most respected person in, in, uh, in blockchain space. And his vision was that we start to see essentially that instead of having the traditional organization where humans are at the center in terms of making the decisions and flowing things through to having, um, you know, essentially giving that task to technology or work humans to do, to flipping that around to saying that technology is the center and that allocates work to humans to do. So in this concept, which I was describing of humans plus AI, it's instead of just having this workflow, we start to actually have the technologies which make sure that the humans are doing the work which adds the most value individually or collectively, and that that is managed by the algorithm that is the organization. 
This is a compelling vision for what organization or one manifestation of what organizations can become. And so that's where I think the potential of Web3 is. Essentially, we start to see more and more organizational forms. Again, to the point I was making earlier, more and more varieties of organizational forms, more and more different structures by which we bring together humans and technology. Uh, and the, we start to see ones which are leaderless in the sense of that they are essentially a combination of the coordination of ideas from humans and ideas from, uh, you know, which are coordinated by the technology. Yeah, awesome. Love that. Really, really powerful distinctions there on where that's heading. And it segues well into the financial world because you've got a lot of experience, um, you know, in the financial um, industry. And and I want to hear about it from the lens of cryptocurrency, right? Because it's changing a lot. It's being used more by financial institutions now these days, um, you know, social media applications, etc. Now, um, you know, less and less ATMs, you know, where you can take money out uh, are happening. I'm, you know, I'm seeing this here in Australia anyway, right? Um, so I'd like to hear your thoughts about, I guess, the future of money, you know, wh where that's heading. Is, is there still going to be an element of cash? Is, is everything going to be, you know, using crypto for everything else? It's still going to be standard, um, you know, financial institutions compared to crypto. I'd love to hear your thoughts on what you're seeing out there and where do you think it's heading? Well, again, that's a massive topic, but I suppose the, the summary view is that cash is not going to disappear for the foreseeable future. And there's a number of demands for cash. Part of it is simply the black economy, black market economy, where people still want cash. People want the degree of privacy that cash offers. And it's also correlated to the lack of trust in institutions including government or you know including banks and including government where you know it's still this idea that this is uh, this has value will retain so sweden is the country which has uh, most reduced its degree of cash um can't remember the specific figures and it's getting close to cash not having a place but they they don't see cash disappearing entirely uh at any point either the we will have digital currencies well we do have digital currencies we'll have more digital currencies and the primary question if we think of scenarios for the future of money is the degree to which uh, those digital currencies will be government and uh, uh, driven so that's the cbdc's the central bank uh, digital currencies or that they are non-government such as your Bitcoins or Ethereum's or other coins. And at this point, there seems to be a pretty clear that, well, it's, it's most likely by far at the moment that the central bank digital currencies, the government endorsed currencies are going to predominate. So this requires the government to be able to pull this together. So it's many countries again sweden there's china uk uh you know some of the ones which are most advanced in the digital currencies australian government is can, uh, beginning to experiment with those so the and one of the way reasons for the them being more likely to dominate is twofold well i mean the manyfold but two of the most important reasons are that, that the governments have been effective in being able to manage the flows in and out of cryptocurrencies where it's not impossible but it's harder and harder to get uh australian you know australian us japanese whatever currency into crypto without governments being aware of that uh in the first instance and also that the lack uh in, at this point significant lack of trust in crypto in the broader sense. And there's many reasons for that, not just, you know, what we've of course seen uh, unfold with FTX and so on over the last little while, but also that uh, there's a lot of very, it's, you know, almost anybody that's been in crypto space for a long time has had money stolen or lost. You know, it's essentially, it's very, very, very hard to be able to, 
uh, keep crypto and keep it secure over a long, uh, over extended periods. And so there is, it's not necessarily as good a store of value because of its, uh, I suppose, more likely to be able to be uh, uh, hacked in various guises. And, you know, essentially this is no longer seen, you know, this after the various ups and downs and cycles and roller coasters of crypto over quite a few years now, there are still some true believers, but there's far more people who are having questioned the degree to which these are stores of value, including, of course, the uh, so-called stable coins, which are supposed to be pegged to a currency and uh, but have not always managed to succeed at that. Yeah, awesome. Thanks for sharing your thoughts around where that's going. Very interesting uh, developments. We'll see what the uh, governments do in the near future there. And, um, you know, you're an author of five books um, and in your latest book uh, is called Thriving on Overload, um, you know, the five powers for success in a world of exponential information. So, yeah, tell us more about it and, and how it can help us. The, I think we need to understand that humans are information processing machines. When we are born, when we're a baby, we are looking at our environment. We're getting information from our senses, you know, which is what color is this? How does this respond? You know, what is the sound that my, my parents are making and be able to interpret that? And as a base of that, to work out how it is that we can act to get what we want, to be able to create our lives. And we learn, we take in information in various guises and all work today is essentially taking information, knowing what's going on, be able to see things, be able to build our models and to be able to act as a result. Now, our world has changed dramatically. So our brains are changing, but not very fast. The world is changing far faster around us. And we are being barraged by information in you know, what were previously unimaginable ways. So at all moments, you know, there's a lot of people that are exposing themselves to information at all moments through the day, from waking up and checking their social media and the updates and the email through to uh, the end of the day when they switch off. So this is basically, this doesn't work well. You know, our brains are not built for these. So uh, we need to work out in this world of overload how it is we can be as successful as possible. This is in a way the key factor for success, our ability to in a world wash with information, to take what is useful, to leave what is not useful, and to be able to uh, use that to create value. And that's not just about being able to achieve better work outcomes, be able to see the opportunities first, to be able to make uh, sense of the world, be able to make better decisions, but also in terms of our happiness and our health and our balance, where it's we're not able to achieve um, if we are taking in information all the time, which is not that which serves us well. We can get depressed, a bit of an affliction today in society, and we're not unrelated to the pervasive information, uh, and get sucked into the more of this doom scrolling and uh, constant updates and not doing the work which is going to improve our lives through achieving our successes and so on. So driving an overload just points to the ways in which we can, it's a guide, really a guidebook, a very pragmatic guidebook to how it is that we can make sense of a world, decide what's most important to us, to be able to filter information effectively, to build knowledge from that, to be able to control our attention, to be able to pull that together, to be able to make the decisions that will drive value in the world. Yeah, awesome. Sounds really powerful. I'll definitely be getting it and delving into it uh, very soon. And yeah, it's been a powerful episode today, Ross. And, and as we're wrapping up here, uh, what one key piece of advice would you like to give to all the entrepreneurs watching and listening today? It's to take a step back. And the thing is, we, we're always caught up in being, there's so much to do. There's always things to do. And uh, I've got a lot of things to do today, books, other things. And so we have to take a pause and step back. And then one of the reasons is, of course, to continue to be aware of our purpose, our direction, what is guiding us, you know, to make sure that we're spending time on the priorities. But 
time frame of that information, it is being able to be able to take a step back to say, well, what is it that is truly useful to us, me, and what serves me, and what isn't? And what, taking a step back, what is it should I stop doing, including some of my digital information activities, and what is it that I should be spending time on without interruptions, developing my ability to focus. And I think that's critical to understand how it is that you can improve your own information habits through the day. Yeah, awesome. Love that. Extremely powerful. And yeah, we connected through our networks, uh, learned about your awesome journey from, you know, being in the financial sector to founding multiple businesses and becoming a futurist where you yeah focus on where business is heading as well as um, society and overall in general. And uh, you're an awesome guy, extremely knowledgeable, a lot of wisdom there. And I'm sure you continue to help businesses and people create their ideal future. Uh, very grateful that we connected and I look forward to working with you. So Ross, how can people find you and get in contact with you? Uh, so rossdawson.com for just uh, general information about my work a lot of resources there free book chapters and so on thriving on overload.com includes not just my book but i also have the podcast thriving on overload we have a course which helps people to optimize their information activities and we have a whole set of other resources there and linkedin is where i share the most these days on uh, various resources but also on Twitter, I'm pretty easy to be found. Awesome. Definitely check out the websites, guys, and uh, and Ross's key social media channels there. Uh, powerful. So awesome today with what he's shared with us. And I'm sure you get a lot more with him once you follow and, and reach out and, and learn more from Ross. And, and thank you to everyone for watching and listening to this show where we talk about everything on business growth. And please like, subscribe, and leave us a five-star review. You can find me on LinkedIn, Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube as Ethan Cassiotis. Or visit my website, ethancassiotis.com. If you want to grow and scale your business, you can reach out to me on any platform to see if we're a good fit. And I completely agree with you, or do I? But the only way we know is if you tune in next time. So until next time, remember that our business grows when we learn skills and take action using them in spite of fear. So remember to design your growth and results.